I'm Christopher Lawson, and this is Building a Unicorn, a show exploring what it takes to turn an idea into a globally recognised company. When you think about everything that goes into making a big blockbuster movie, you obviously have the director, the actors, all the crew, and then you have the lighting, the sets, and the cameras. And once you get everything on film, you want to make it look and sound good. And that's where you might turn to Blackmagic Design. Blackmagic Design is a company known throughout the TV and movie industries for creating some incredible equipment and software which cost just a fraction of the competition. And their products are used in a large amount of Oscar-nominated films. With five of the eight films that were nominated for Best Picture in 2019 using some Blackmagic Design products. And what's fascinating about this story is Blackmagic Design is an Australian company. Grant Petty, the CEO and founder of Blackmagic, decided that he didn't want to go the way of other startups by building a business that just packed up and moved to Silicon Valley or to Hollywood. He wanted to build an oasis for creativity in Melbourne, and that oasis now brings in 300 million Australian dollars a year in revenue. Grant grew up in regional Victoria in a small town called Namurka, which is around 30 minutes drive north of the regional centre of Shepparton. And in his early life, his family was not that well off. He lived in housing commission homes provided by the government, and his mum was on a pension. But Grant credits that lifestyle for giving him the drive to do his own thing. When you live in the housing commission area of a country town, essentially government housing, That's that was a cluster of government housing in that town, and you are the lowest rung. Now, what was interesting about the country town is it either crushes you or it doesn't. Yeah, sure. And I think everybody knows that there's a lot of drug problems in country towns. Mm. I have a feeling the reason I wasn't crushed by it is because I was interested in electronics, so I didn't notice the hierarchy that was around me. Right. I mean, I should have known that I was at the bottom rung of a dominance hierarchy, essentially, if that's probably the correct term for it, I think. I should have known that I was nothing, and... I was supposed to be nothing and I should have just been a labourer or whatever it was supposed to be. But I just didn't know that because I was interested in creating things. So I was, sure. you know, I was, I was doing electronics. I was there in the back room so with a soldering iron, pulling things apart. And when, also, when did you, you know, first become interested in electronics? Well, I always have. I was, apparently when I was a little you know, toddler, I got lost and I had a light socket and a screwdriver in my hands. And my <laughs> mum was telling everyone, he's got a light socket and a screwdriver. My dad was supposed to be looking after me and he didn't obviously do a good enough job. And I wandered off and they ended up finding me and I still had a light bulb and I light socket and a screw. My mum used to go to the secondhand stores to buy the clothes and I used to just go straight for the, the shelf that had like egg beaters and light switches and things on it. So, you know, there's no electronic shops in a country town. Right. Uh, the school had a couple of Apple II computers. So what you didn't tend to do is you'd do your classes and then recess and lunchtime, you'd rush in and find one of those computers, jump on it and start coding and there were some books in the library. I found it strange when people would say, look, F off back to the housing commission where you belong. And I'd look at that and go, what the hell's wrong with that guy? You know, mm. not realising that that's an upstanding member of the community and I'm basically in the house commission area as, as trash and I'm supposed to know my place. And right. I didn't know my place because as far as I was concerned, I was coding and doing all those other activities, which I just didn't know. And if you look at it, there's a lot of people in the world that are the most creative that actually started off very, very poor and at the bottom rung. Mm. That's fine. I think the trick is don't notice that there is a hierarchy, just ignore it. Sure. Because we live in a world where we're not animals. We don't have to be the bottom of a hierarchy, you can actually imagine your way out of that. And that's mm. what actually makes us human. So that's where you come from. And essentially, I never really noticed that that hierarchy was there. And I still even sure. don't today. 
Grant's interest in technology deepened, and at one point his dad decided that there were just too many issues and problems in a small country town. So the family moved to Shepparton, which by many standards is still fairly small. But it meant that Grant was able to attend a bigger school, and one that had a television studio, a rare thing for schools in Australia, especially in regional areas. They'd been set up uh, like a decade or something earlier, so the gear was really out of date. It wasn't like super sexy. Like the drama teacher that was running used to say, oh, people only, they only have this here because it looks good when parents visit. Sure. You know, because it was really old black and white TVs and things. And it was colour, but the picture quality was bad. The decks didn't record properly. But that was funny because we got to tinker with it because nobody really cared about it. Right. And I think it's funny when you have some piece of technology that no one really cares about, then people tinker with it. And right. It was, it was, just, just, no it was just sitting there and yeah, and yeah exactly. it was and open then, for you to explore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then they also got another grant when I was there to build a room full of Apple IIs and they had those. Okay. So what you had is I was programming computers one minute Next minute, I'm in the TV studio tinkering around, and we used to go there at lunchtime, recess. We'd run a school radio, so we'd, you know, me and my friends would be putting out like a school radio through the speakers. Sure. What what kind of um, what kind of stuff would you talk about on the school radio? <laughs> oh, mostly just music and just idiotic stuff. We did some interviews. We wanted to do the school sports, but the electronics teacher wouldn't let us take the cable we needed to actually connect the cameras, and he wouldn't <laughs> let us move the cameras out of the studio to film the school sports. So we did an interview with the school principal about smoking or something like that. And the electronics teacher and someone else, and the principal was so happy with us and thought it was so good that he basically asked him in front of him to let us do it. This experience at school taught Grant a lot about the process of creativity. It was a time where he got to experiment and come up with new ideas. He was working on concepts in the TV studio and then going off to the computer lab to write software. And as it came time to graduate, he was already thinking about a move into the television industry. So he went off to a local TV station to do some work experience. The audio engineer there was showing me around the facility and he was showing me things like, you know, various technologies. And I remember looking at this uh, thing called vertical null test signals, which is really an obscure thing. But I remember he was showing me this and I remember thinking, it just hit me like a lightning bolt when I'm standing there in front of an equipment rack with all this gear and it's all lights flashing. But I'm thinking, this is never going to get boring. Right. This is the industry it's, I've already been doing it and it's interesting, but there's so much more to learn here and I don't think it's ever sure. going to get boring. In fact, Grant was so taken by the idea of doing TV that he decided to get into the industry and began working at a post-production facility in Melbourne. He was mostly doing engineering and it allowed him to gain a deep understanding of how the industry worked. And after a few years, when he was around 23, he decided to make a move to Singapore to work for a production house called VHQ. And it was while working in Singapore as an expat that he really began to notice the possibilities and differences in the global market. I saw a different way of thinking as well. I mean, I think if you're young, you've got to live in a different country to really understand. I mean, there's too much taken for granted. In some ways, you actually become trapped by an ideology of your culture. Mm. Stepping outside of that just shatters that and you start to realise the differences. So when you're first up, you're like, hey, this is different, this is different, this is different, what's going on? But then you realise, oh, actually, the you're becoming less inbred, essentially, and you're able to think differently. Grant was living with an editor he worked with named Peter, and it was the early 90s. This was the time when technology was really starting to explode. But television production was all done on tape, and the technology that made that process work was incredibly expensive. We were, um, I was sharing with an editor and, you know, an apartment in Singapore, and we were looking at... Um, you know, we, you know, we're just thinking about what the future would be, looking at equipment. In those days, if you bought the wrong gear, you're in big trouble. You had to make sure you bought, like, the right type of deck, because if you didn't buy the right one, 
and everyone else bought something else. You couldn't interchange tapes with them. You had to pay off the damn deck. It was expensive. And these decks were 100 grand or more, so right. they weren't cheap. Just for one tape machine, you know, the uh, flame we bought, I think, was well over a million dollars um, for wow. that. So you had to make you know, pretty clear decisions. Hmm. If you decided wrong, you were in deep trouble. Sure. And it would be the difference when a facility that did well and didn't do well. And as you became more senior in a facility, you realized that that role was partly your responsibility with a few other people. So it became a little bit more, you know, you spent a lot of time thinking about what the right decisions might be, testing things and even going to trade shows. But what struck me as strange is that, you know, the friend had bought a, a scanner and it came with a light version of Photoshop. And, you know, he was sort of like, hey, have you seen this? And I'm like looking at thinking, shit, this is the same as Paintbox. And Paintbox was, mm. a, I think, a $70,000 product at the time. It was a rack thing that, you know, worked in, right. painted into the screen. And I thought, geez, this is actually the same. And it sort of it hit me this was actually more powerful and it was given away with the scanner. Inspired by the early versions of Photoshop, Grant started thinking about how you could apply the same type of technology to the traditional TV production process. He came up with some concepts and started pitching them to people in the industry. And that's when he noticed the problem. Nobody wanted to do it. And I realised that's because they rely on the fact that those, that equipment costs so much money that they're basically an equipment hire business. That's what they are. The television industry wasn't actually a creative business. It was an equipment hire business. And that sort of struck me. It's like they didn't want to adopt anything. They, did, they wanted to buy the most expensive gear they could. Grant even pitched the idea to some of the equipment manufacturers. And nobody was interested. They just kept turning him away. And they were just like, oh, there's no market for it. I'm like, well, that's bizarre because I need something like that. So there is a market for it because people like me need it. Right. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go off and do this myself. So Grant went away and began designing a product that would allow you to get video in and out of your computer. It was a capture card that was designed to work with Apple's QuickTime. It allowed you to get your footage into your Mac so you could then do your post-production. He then launched this product along with some business partners under a company they called Digital Voodoo. I read that when you were designing those cards initially, like you really cared about the way that they looked. Yes, uh, yeah. Why was that? I think because people were buying essentially a board. And if you looked at the time, you'd get a system from a large manufacturer that had the computer, the disc was all set up, and even the cables to connect to the deck, the speakers, the monitor, everything. Here I'm expecting someone to buy a card, like literally just a board. I mean, I'm selling that to creative people, and they look and go, oh, that's a weird electronic thing. I don't want to plug that in. So I try to make it a bit fun and a bit more exciting and a bit more, um, I don't know, it's like be a bit of a rebel. I made the board red and I put like there was a carbon layer we put underneath to make the board darker and just tried to make it a, a bit more nice we had some nice blinking lights just to, you know, put a little bit of extra effort in to make it nice and and fun because I was literally saying to somebody we could go out and buy a $300,000 editing system or you can plug this card in and for a couple of thousand dollars do it with whatever software's off the shelf you know you think that would be a no-brainer but for yeah. a lot of people they're like oh well I just go and buy one of these Right. Like, and that was just it. I mean, it was almost Was it this, difficult to, like, get people across the line to buy those early, not, early cards? What I found was, yes, the people that existed in the industry, it was. It was almost impossible. Actually, they didn't care. They're already doing well from what they already have. Right. you got to remember, when you do something new, the people you that exist in that market have already done well not using your product. So why would they use it? Why would they switch? Right. So what you've got to do is realize you've got to create a new market. So I was remember going and demoing to various people. And what I'd notice is that one or two people from that group at that large facility would break out and do their own facility and then buy our product. So I started doing shows heavily. That was a way to meet new people. That obviously, if you go to a trade show, you're looking for solutions to things. If you bump into you, then you get a chance to chat to them. You know, So I found that was a really good way of, of getting to people. But I've realized that I needed to kind of basically construct a whole new industry. It sounds weird to think that 
you know, we live in a world where everyone analyzes market segments, but I realized, well, the market just is a construct of what exists in it. So you just change what exists in it and the market will change. By this time, Grant had moved back to Australia because it was pretty expensive to run a product company in Singapore. Whenever he tried to order anything from the manufacturers, they'd ask for orders in the thousands of parts when he was really just this small startup that only wanted seven or eight. Australia at the time was just a more supportive place to be. And Grant's early capture cards were really embraced by graphic designers to get their video files into a machine and start working with software like After Effects. And by all measures, Digital Voodoo was doing pretty well and gradually gaining momentum throughout the late 90s. But this was where the journey turned sour. Well, I haven't really spoken too much about it because, like, what's the point? I mean, you've got to focus on the future. Grant doesn't like to talk much about his experience at Digital Voodoo, because in 1999 and early 2000, as the dot-com bubble was ready to burst, tension was building inside the company. And part of the problems were created by the style of leadership that Grant had implemented, one which was modelled off the TV industry and which really favoured empowerment, so that people could make their own decisions. I give everyone a lot of space. I expect Mm. a lot from people. Working in the TV industry, everyone's Even the TV industry that I felt had problems, the reality is the TV industry also did a lot of things right. I mean, it made TV content. And the structure of it was generally everyone had their role. Everybody Mm. knew and had the skill that they do. So everyone worked together as a team, but sort of independently as a team. And the job kind of tied everyone together. What I do is I structure uh, my companies the same way. What that means, though, is I expect a lot from people. I expect them to be mature, to have their role amongst a bunch of us. And uh, we all get out there and we do the things we need to do. And together we're successful and we can come up with new ideas. So I, I do let people have a bit of uh, a freedom, essentially, a lot of freedom, right. actually. Um, otherwise, you can't uh, contribute. The problem is uh, sometimes occasionally people turn on you and they don't realize this is not a weakness. It's just a decentralized management approach. My essentially is I take all the management function that's generally centralized in most companies, which is why it becomes overly complex. Right. So it's usually um, a hierarchy sort yeah, of exactly, structure. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and that's... a um, what I do is I try to decentralize it where the person that's at the center of that, which is essentially me, I guess, I'm in a support role to make sure that everyone has everything they need to actually function. You're trying to empower your staff exactly, to Exactly, to make sure they really work. come. If, you, if you're running a coal mine, right, um, you talk about you know, moving decision-making close to the coal face, but that's not good enough. If you're running a coal mine, why would you make a decision in the board, like in a board meeting or something, when you can actually go down in the mine and ask the guy that's actually digging and say, look, can you make this decision because you know more about what's actually happening right here. And then if he does go, well, I don't know, what decision's the right one? We go, well, what do you need to know? So the trick is make sure the guy at the call face is actually doing the function. He's no one that knows more than that guy. So he should make the decision, but he needs extra information to sort of understand the context of what he's working in. So everyone has to have more information around them about what they're actually doing, why they're doing it, like what. So there's a lot more conversations. But occasionally people turn on you and they think you're weak because they think this is a, there's this whole, you know, so dominant, is that, the is that what happened? Is it like yeah, I came, you? I was doing, I did 13 show, trade shows in one year because I was trying to build channels. And so I'm out there doing the trade shows and the products are barely working. Every time a new computer would come out, they just break. Not realizing that the accountant is actually white anning you and basically trashing. And I come back and realized that everyone basically hated my guts and they were doing whatever right, the hell they so wanted they to do. so they were like trash talking you behind Oh yeah, like back. vicious, vicious stuff. Like and all kind of making up all kinds of accusations and emailing people saying, I'm going to do all these crazy things. And if they did crazy things, it'd be terrible. Not that we're saying Grant would do crazy things. I'm like, what is that? How do you even defend against that? I realized what they'd done is they got themselves worked up into this, let's do over Grant. I'm like, I'm, they say I've walked out. I'm just like, I'm not doing this. I'm not killing myself. 13 shows in one year, 12 of them are international shows. Consistently jet lagged, trying to build channels, trying to build relationships with customers, build up the brand. 
and I can barely keep the company, you know, I'm spending each day in engineering trying to get the products limping along. Meanwhile, at night, I'm trying to respond to customers on support issues and things. Seven hours, you know, seven days a week, you know, 16 hour days minimum. And I'm tired. I'm just, this is it. I'm, I'm not being treated like this. So I just walked out. And I think that's an important thing. You need right. to understand too many people make compromises in business. My philosophy has always been, I'll give everyone all the freedom they need. I'll give them all the support they need. But don't make the mistake of thinking I'm weak. What I'm doing is decentralizing part of the function of the big group to you. Now, if you can't handle it, that's your problem, not mine. So immediately the shutters go down. So the minute I realize someone turns on me, it's okay, I've got to push that person out of my life because you can't spend your life with those people around you. They're poison. And unfortunately, if someone wants to self-actualize by pushing you down, that's not anything to do with me. That's sure. you. So I think people find so it... So you made, you made the decision to I'm walk. Out. Right. I, I walked out. Right. I like this. So I didn't I knew, push I you out. Like, you, you were no, like, I no, out. I need, yeah, I need to I'm be out in here. a better yeah, environment. Yeah, I said, I said yeah. I'm out of here. You know, yeah. I thought I'm not going to be treated like this. Mm. And I remember that, that night beforehand, I said, I was thinking, I was, you know, I was up all night literally thinking about it, thinking, okay, I've got to sack the accountant. Sure. He's got to go. I can't talk this through. I tried to talk it through with them and they just weren't even looking at me. You know, and you know when people don't look at you in the eye, they're so caught up in their own bullshit. And I haven't really spoken about this before, but I thought, okay, I've got to sack the accountant. So if they won't let me sack him, because I'm not a dominant you know, uh, shareholder, then I can't stay here because I can't have this guy in the place. This place is doomed. And so I said, he, um, you know, they wouldn't support me. So I'm like, okay, that's it then. And I'm, I'm out of here, you know, and resigned and left. And coming up after the break, how the failure of digital voodoo led Grant down a path to build the global giant that is Blackmagic Design. This is Building a Unicorn, I'm Christopher Lawson. After Grant left Digital Voodoo back in early 2000, he spent a bit of time recovering. And in 2001, he was ready to give it all another shot. Grant was still a shareholder of Digital Voodoo, and he just assumed it would continue to do well. So he started Blackmagic Design as a way to build a smart server-type product that would sit alongside those capture cards as the next step in the chain. I thought, well, if these products are in the market, I'll, what I'll do is the next step, I'll build a product that's actually dependent on those types of products. Because that's what's going to happen. If I've built a company that's got a card that brings video in out of a computer, that's going to change you know, design and stuff. But I'm still a shareholder of that business, right? So what can I build that actually goes on top of that? Now, I'm going to skip over a few of the details here. But as Grant began the process of building a new business, his former partners over at Digital Voodoo really didn't like what he was doing. And Grant says there were some pretty dodgy business practices going on at the company. There was also a bit of a public fight happening between the two businesses and their different approaches. There are actually posts and statements online about this incident from way back in 2002 and 2003. But Grant's partners eventually ran the company into the ground. I thought, okay, wow, they're not just attacking me as a guy running the place, they're also trying to actually destroy the wealth that I have in the, in the shareholding in the company. So I have to go off and do something else. I'm, in fact, I'm going to get back into it because it looks like I'm going to need some money to fight these guys. And I was still sending legal letters, threats and things like that. So I thought it hasn't gone away. Like leaving like, hasn't gone away. And I realized at the time what was going on, they couldn't run it. They had to shrink it because they didn't understand what it was doing. So by shrinking it though, you can't just start to run something and shrink it and make out that that's a good thing. Yeah. They've got to blame someone for the fact that it's shrinking even though they can't understand it being as big as what it was, which it wasn't that big. 
but they've got to shrink it because they're not that bright. So what they end up doing is continuing to trash you after they're gone because that's the point. You've got to shrink something because you don't understand it, but you've got to blame someone else for the fact it's shrinking. So that's why I kept getting the threats. So what I realized is that, hey, I can't, I I still haven't really escaped this. I'm going to have to actually fight them because it's, there's legal letters and stuff coming through. So I've got to get onto something I know. So I thought, okay, screw it. I'm going to get back into this because Mm -hmm. I know it. I know what I'm doing. They'd already had a couple of engineers leave because they weren't impressed with what they're doing. So I thought, let's start up something else. And that became Blackmagic Design. When you start any business, one of the first things that you need to consider is equity. Grant started Blackmagic with two other employees and despite being the founder, decided to split the equity between them. People think that's insane, but the great thing is if I earned the majority of this company, it wouldn't be as exciting. I wouldn't find the kind of creative pressure. You've got to still perform and do well. And Mm. I think that... Not only that, you can't offer anyone anything when they first, when you first start out. You've got nothing to offer. Often you don't even have the competence to offer. It's not like if I was doing it now, you'd have more ability to maybe to not do that. But I just thought it was a fair thing to do because we've all got to put time in. You know, when I grew up in a country town, the sky's huge. The area was flat. You know, you're out in the middle of a field or paddock or a desert. And that's the way the world looks to, I think, someone who's creative. There's a blankness. There's a non-existence of anything. I mean, if you're trying to create something that doesn't exist, then there is nothing. It's a blankness. You start with essentially a blank slate. You're out in the desert by yourself, and it's barren out there, and it's, it's desolate and isolated. So what you have to do is you have to essentially create something. You've got to create your own little oasis. So how did you decide which people to bring in at well, the start? Well, it's obviously people that you need to yeah. survive. And you were looking around and well, saying, first, well, I need this role, go, I need this role, I need this role. To a certain degree, but in the first role, uh, in the first go of it, I picked the wrong people. In the second go, I picked the right people because um, I knew more and I could able to pick. Sure. But you've got to get something that can function. I mean, you're literally out in the desert, you're thirsty, you're hungry, whatever. So you've got to get, you've got to assemble some people to allow you to function and then you add people. And so what you're really doing is, you're creating your own oasis. It's very different and the rules are different. It's based on whatever the creative construct or the creative environment that you're, you're essentially doing. But it is a movement and it's a construct of people. Mm. And as you grow, that oasis gets bigger and bigger. But it's sort of tenuous because it is based on creativity. You're on barren ground, essentially, the mm. way to think about it. So you've, the creativity is what holds it together and the creativity is what gives it value right. and gives it life. After a year or so of hard work, Grant was ready to release Blackmagic Design's first product in November of 2002. It was called the Blackmagic Decklink, and Grant was using all the connections he'd established in the industry to quickly get the word out. Was it like an instant success or...? Yeah, it was actually. It, it did was? really well. I, um, it was a problem. I mean, look, I knew a lot of people, and I'd also, you know, obviously I'd met a lot of people when I was travelling and doing all those trade shows. So I organised it with a few friends to do uh, some distribution for us, you know, sure. people I knew. We also did consignment stock right from day one, so they didn't have to the cost of that. We kind of managed that. Um, but what was interesting is I, I had an interview with, uh, I can't remember what the uh, podcast was at the time, and it was a live, actually, interview. So I, I called in, and it was live streamed, and I actually announced the product on their on their thing. So they had a bunch of people listening, so we got a, a bunch of people who heard about it. And also we got uh, a bunch of dealers who wanted to take the product on, and so it, it sort of went from there. And it was a good product. I mean, we had a product that actually was we'd worked on pretty hard and it was pretty good. And so, um, you know, it was uh, we had done some innovation in it at the time, which made it uh, lower cost and had real-time effects and other things like that. So it actually did quite well at the time. And it started selling. And it was just enough money to help us self-fund the whole thing. So it, it did well from the start. Yep. But at what point did you realize that these products and the culture that you were building was creating something that was actually going to be really big that's an interesting question um, a really interesting question because a few distributors I knew said that 
they said, you know, this is going to be really big. I'm like, really? Like, I, didn't, I hadn't even thought of that. Like, you just look at a whole bunch of problems, right? And you go, oh, I've got to solve this problem, solve that problem. It's like, oh, gee, it's getting big. Like, it's not something, I think it's not something you really focus on. You're really focused on building that oasis, right? And that is a platform of for solving problems. And you're really just thinking about the problems that people are having and going, well, how do I solve that? If you do it well, then, you know, you'll... Uh, you'll hopefully do well financially. You've got to make sure the products aren't loss-making and things like that. Yeah. You've got, to have, you've got to be organized, but you do hope that these big things you're trying to do will actually benefit people and they can see the value in it and then they'll go off and take those products and do amazing things themselves. Blackmagic Design now have 10 offices around the world. Some of them they opened because they needed a better distribution pipeline and others they acquired through the purchase of other companies. And the very first deal they made was for a company called DaVinci. Why did you decide to acquire DaVinci? At the time it had come up, they were in trouble, serious financial trouble. It was the middle of the global financial crisis. We didn't have any debt and we hadn't used any funding to build the place. So we had enormous creative freedom on how we really ran our company. And we saw DaVinci as as potentially being an interesting opportunity if we could fix it. It needed fixing. And so we brought a bunch of senior people over there and we really pulled the company apart to have a look to see how it worked. And I remember spending the whole week just looking at it thinking, oh, I, don't, I don't think this can be fixed. I think it's really far gone. But then on the final day, actually, we went to Kennedy Space Center, funny enough, and we're looking around Kennedy Space Center, and I'm sitting there thinking, actually, you know, the funny thing is they're good at the things we're not good at, and we're good at the things they're not good at. I, I think everyone's been super happy with how it went down, and we've mm. managed to grow it, and now it's one of the main Yeah, apps, it's like one of your main so offerings, right? Yeah, it's, it's been really, really good. And there's a bunch of really smart guys there and girls that do all that, that software, and we've got some, you know, I mean, just... It's been a really exciting product line. I mean, it's radically changed from what it was. I mean, remember the DaVinci was a $350,000 system. The top system was $850,000. So, I mean, that was what it was. We bought it out on a Mac and for $1,000. And, and now, in fact, there's a free version. It's extremely powerful. My theory about DaVinci, there's all these cloud uh, models and things like that. I don't like the cloud model because it basically penalizes people for being loyal. Right. If you have to pay cloud licenses, you've got to pay, a th- you know, you're essentially renting your software. Right. And if you don't keep paying every month, the software shuts down and you basically can't open up your projects. But our, our feeling, or my feeling on that is that if you can download the software for free, it means mm. you can actually get started. And that's the best expression of the motto of our company, which is empowering creativity. In mm. fact, I've changed it to empowering creative freedom because okay. there's a thing happening in software and computing these days where it's become a centralized thing again. I think the computer industry has forgotten about the spirit behind when they were set up. Right. Personal computers were about distributing computing power to individual people. Now it's become a centralization of your data and you're the product, not the product you're actually buying. So it's flipped and now become the most draconian nightmare thing you could possibly imagine. So I don't. I think the computer industry has lost its way. User interfaces have become difficult to use. You know, it's, it's bizarre. And so I've changed our motto to empowering creative freedom. So we remember that every decision we make in our products are to enhance the freedom people have to be creative. And now you've got yeah, you've got products one. in a range of different categories. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you pr- you produce some incredibly I- incredibly high quality uh, camera equipment mm. um, that comes at a very low ticket price compared yeah. to uh, some of the competition. And you're competing against big companies like companies like Red, which have these super expensive mm. equipment. And your equipment is often like a fifth of the price of some of those. Yeah, I don't really see it as being competing against it. What I see it again, you're creating an oasis. See, if, if I ever think like that, oh, I'm going to do this thing and I'm competing against someone else, that's the dominant hierarchy way of thinking. Right. I'm running out of the desert constructing something new. So when I create a product, you notice that our products actually really kind of don't compete directly with other products. They're different. 
And what they're actually doing is they've, I mean, maybe the Ursa broadcast is actually a broadcast camera because we didn't need to have one. And they were literally $200,000 for a, for a fiber-based camera chain. Sure. It's insane. How's this 10? I mean, I just couldn't understand why that was. So it's just a problem we had to solve. So in that way, I guess that is a bit, you know. To the user, your, your competition, like when they're looking at, well, which camera yeah, system do I buy? That's, like, that's do true, I buy that's Black not, Magic? That's or? not what I'm constructing. So what right. I'm constructing essentially yeah. is something that's trying to create something new. So what I'll tend to do is look at the problem we're trying to solve and go, okay, what are we trying to solve here? How do we construct a solution to that? So I'm not at any point really thinking about how that's going to compete with other people in that dominance hierarchy way. I'm just trying to solve a problem and, and exist i'm trying to make a product that can exist what have you screwed up like as oh, tons i mean you screw right. everything up i mean that's the point what you're actually trying to do is constantly put yourself in a position to do a product that you don't know how to do so then everything mm. screws up and you go okay well now what do we break well everything so how do we put it all back together or fix it and that's the bits that we focus on right I mean, how else can you tell where to draw your attention it's like there's a manufacturing process that that people always get wrong and um, it's called one piece flow, right? Where what you do is each person in the production line basically only does one piece and they put that piece that they've finished aside and they don't do any more until that next person down the chain has picked that item up and moved it. Now, every time you implement that, everyone goes, oh, but everyone's sitting around. Yes, that's the point. The point is you've exposed the bottleneck. You've mm. picked a process. It's not supposed to be perfect. What it's supposed to do is expose where the problems are. And the problem is that guy. That guy's working constantly and everyone else is sitting around. So you take that guy's job, you break it into two tasks and you've removed the bottleneck and everything's flowing quite nicely in the, and, it's, and it's moving quite smoothly. That's what a new product is to us. If we do a new product and it's difficult, well, what you're actually doing is breaking all the stuff you don't know and you get a chance to learn it and everyone does and they've got to make sure that the culture in the company is allows us to do that. Things do you own classed. the whole production chain? Or yes, do you, everything. Yeah, okay. We even do translation in-house. We do all these wow. things in-house so we have that flexibility. So if something's not working, you just stop and fix it and then move on. But if you've got the type of business that's set up that literally if something goes wrong as a nightmare then you've politicized the mm. chance to learn. You can't learn anymore because you've got to do so much planning to ensure nothing goes wrong. Well, you want to let things go wrong. You expect that things will go wrong. So it's like an aircraft design, right? An aircraft design's got multiple levels of redundancy. It's expected that something's going to break. You've got to allow your business to be like that. You've got to allow multiple levels of protection so a mistake doesn't destroy you or cost you huge amounts of money. Yeah. Then people can learn from those mistakes and the mistakes become interesting. Like yeah. I found a bunch of accounting issues that slowed down how quickly we could actually get consolidated accounts in the company. I thought, well, I can see the problem here and I rewrote a whole accounting system to mm. do that. Um, and the amount of innovation in that is fantastic. And if I hadn't have seen that problem, because I want real-time accounting. So you've designed your own yeah, accounting system. I, I write all the software that runs the company. Right, um, really? Yeah, because it's, well, what else are you going to do? CEO jobs aren't that busy. I mean, I could create work by like having meetings and yelling at people and running around and doing stupid stuff. But it's really, I mean, there's not much to do. If the people are smart and you've distributed the management, there's not that much left. You mostly got to be the guy that connects everyone together and supports people. So in, when right, I'm so bored, sitting around as, at the, as the CEO, I'm a bit bored. I'm just going to rewrite yeah, write our, write our own accounting yeah, software. The, the, or, that, the, there's a bit more work yeah. in doing that because obviously sure. that's a multi-year project. But the fun bits are the little things you write. Where you go home at night and go, oh, it'd be really cool if I could do a tool that calculated that or did this other thing. And you knock that out in a night and you come in the next morning and go, oh, I did this thing and it's really cool. You know, <laughs> Like last night, we had a problem where there's so many purchase orders put in one of the person's uh, tools for doing all the advertising buying that it was slowing down the update of the list. I'm like, oh, to my task last night is to optimize the code that generates the list. And I got it working from, it had slowed down to over 100 seconds to update the list. And I got it down to two seconds because I just reordered the code. It's like these things when a tool starts getting busy, it changes a bit and sometimes slows down. But that was my little task for last night. So you do these little things, you know, mm. to, to, that are fun, you know, like little satisfying things where you feel like you contributed, sure. you know. But that's what your role is to support everyone. Blackmagic Design now have 350 employees in their Melbourne headquarters and more than 1,000 staff worldwide. 
They have a campus in Port Melbourne with many different buildings, and like all good tech companies, they've got their own chef. And staff can get free food whenever they want. What's it like managing a big company like that now? I mean, a thousand people is a lot different from having having a small team. And I, I imagine yeah, when you started, you probably, I don't know if you were picturing having, you know, no, a thousand employees. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> no, it's true. You know, like it's What's funny. that like? Well, um, it's, if your philosophy is right, I think it's fine. I think if yeah. you just decentralize the management, then I think it's, it's fine. Um, it's exciting because there's so much more going on. And like I was saying before, like the reason I do coding is because what else are you going to do at three in the morning when you wake up with an idea and you think, well, I can't even talk to anyone. They're all asleep. I'll do some code. <laughs> Sure. You know, there's little little projects. You just knock one over in a night. And, oh, that's really cool. And you go back to sleep. And you go, oh, don't, don't kick ass thing. Yeah, there's a bit of that. But I think that uh, it's not as boring when there's more people. You can obviously do a, a bigger trade show booth that can show off more of the products. You can launch a product. There's more customers that are going to notice it. And it's there's lots of exciting stuff happening all the time. So for me, I find it quite exciting. It's a bit of an adrenaline rush. It's it's a probably a bit. It's a bit of a drug, actually, because you think there's so much stuff going on. It is a lot of stuff going on. It's quite complex. A lot of people that have come in and have a hard time getting their head around it. But at the same time, it's very exciting. I mean, it doesn't, you know, if I was just a CEO of an asset-based business, I don't know what I'd do. I'd be really bored. Uh, in this place, there's so much stuff going on that it's uh, really interesting. There's always something you need to think about and there's so many things going on. There's so many exciting, incredibly smart people working here that your mind's blind almost every day. So it, to me, it just gets more exciting as it gets bigger. So you've built this, you've built this big company. Yeah. You've got a thousand people. You've got offices around the world. You're making 300 million Australian in revenue every year and your technology is used all around the world and big productions from Star Wars to Avengers, Game of Thrones, etc. Yeah. When you look at how far that you've come and where Blackmagic is now, what do you feel? I, I think it would be like shocked. I mean, the Christmas parts and parties are shock, but I think the best description was just blown away. I mean, I, I'm blown away by the ability to, to work with the people that I work with. They're just so incredibly smart and so really, the probably the basic feeling is just the metric of the money thing doesn't really impress me because um, to me, it just feels like capability. Like, you know, that income is we can use it to do great things with. Um, it's it's that, you know, it's a, it's more like a, you know, it's like the sock drawer. You know, it's just the socks in it, the, the interesting bit. The drawer is like, well, that's functional. The money is sort of functional. <laughs> right. It's the thing that's the human element. That's the thing that really... And I'm shocked by it all the time. I'm just every day I'm shocked by something someone's come up with or something that they're doing. And it's a fun feeling to think that you're helping everything you can possibly do is about helping to keep that team together and to do some amazing things. If there was one piece of advice that you could give to people from everything that you've learned, what would it be? Oh, that's probably pretty easy. I mean, there's obviously a couple of things, but I think the first thing would be understand your motivations for doing something. If you wanted to start a business, for example, and be an entrepreneur, so to speak, why? Are you doing it because you want to be powerful and rich if you are that's not the right decision you, you, the amount of work involved in this is so much and just when you think you can't get any harder it does that unless you really are trying to do something profound and important mm. that's something that's much deeper than that then you're just going to be one of these guys that builds up something and then sells it and just you know like well that's fine look if you want to be that guy that's nice but really you want something i think in, if you're going to do this properly you've got to have a, some sort of profound thing you've got to be kind of pissed off at the world about something something's wrong, there's an injustice or something, I'm going to solve that. Create a product or do something that's creative. Make something that doesn't exist. Find something you can really get your teeth in, something profound, something you can enjoy doing, and it's something that's got some longevity in it. So that years later, when you've put all that hard work in, you can look back and go, we really did some cool things and it was important. And from that, you'll get a level of satisfaction that feels like you've actually had a life well spent. 
So I think you've got to underpin any business you're trying to create with something really profound you want to change and make sure you are actually trying to change something. Otherwise, you're just another hamburger joint. Can you look back when you're 80 years old in a rocking chair and look back and go, oh, wow. Oh, and probably the second bit of, you know, 1.5 advice <laughs> sure. we'll allow is it. Yeah. look at someone old. Look at a 60 and a 70-year-old and find out what they're doing and look at the ones that are doing well versus the ones that aren't. Because if you're 20 or you're 19 or 15 even, look at the people that are doing old and find out the ones that are doing well and find out what it is why they're doing well uh, which ones are happy not the ones that might be rich or poor but which ones are happy and interesting they're probably still busy with something that's got creative challenges doesn't matter how old you are if you can keep doing it keep doing it for as long as you can but look ahead see where your destination is and your destination is to be old and essentially retired so have a look at those people and go which ones are doing well and which ones aren't and you can then sort of look up to that and go okay I can see what they're doing and I can see which jobs have potentially got some longevity to them um mm-hmm. Because there's a lot of jobs that people choose nowadays that really are not going to be possible to do when you're 30 or 40. So mm. you do need to be somewhat make some intelligent decisions, but that's if you're younger. Mm. But that would be my prime advice. Do something that has meaning. Thanks to Grant and the team at Blackmagic Design. Building a Unicorn is a Lawson Media production. You can find out more about the show or get episode transcripts at our website, buildingaunicorn.com. This episode was hosted and scripted by me, Christopher Lawson, with research by Patrick Laverick. Our theme music is by Nick Buchanan and other music from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Mixing and editing of this episode by James Parkinson and our artwork is by Andrew Millist. And if you love this episode, make sure you share it with all your friends. And while you're at it, why not leave us a five-star review? If you've got any guest suggestions or just have some feedback, send us an email to unicorn at lawson.media. We'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks for listening.